Great. So uh, today we're going to have a talk by Karen Eli, and um, she did her BA in Anthropology at Arizona State University, and then the MSc in Medical Anthropology here, and the DPhil here as well. Um, and today she's going to be talking to us about the phenomenology of binge eating in anorexia and bulimia. So, hello everyone. Um, so Rachel already told you everything that you need to know about me. Um, and um, before I begin, I just want to share with you that this morning I got a really interesting email from someone who inquired about my talk. And he was wondering whether I'm going to exclusively focus on binge eating in eating disorders or whether I'm going to somehow relate it to a continuum of practices that might result in obesity in the general population. And so, as I told him, this is about eating disorders, but I really feel like, as I talk, it'll be really good and helpful to keep in mind how this could relate to other practices, not necessarily pathologized practices, not necessarily something you would consider out of the ordinary, but ways in which people relate to food in the general population that might contribute to obesity on a wider scale. So that's just something to keep in mind um, as we go along. So to begin with, what is a binge? Um, Binge is a term that's used in everyday discourse, but while it might seem almost self-explanatory, a binge-eating episode, at least in the clinical sense, has definite parameters. These parameters are crucial to the diagnosis of bulimia, and to a lesser degree, to the binge-perch subtype of anorexia nervosa. So, if we look at the DSM-4-TR, which is the most recent published version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, a binge is defined as eating in a discrete period of time, for example, within, within any two-hour period, an amount of food that is definitely larger than most people would eat during a similar period of time and under similar circumstances, coupled with a sense of lack of control over eating during the episode, defined by a feeling that one cannot stop eating or control how much one is eating. So binge eating is characterized by three attributes, episodic discrete temporality, comparatively large amounts of food, and a sense of lack of control. A binge eating episode may be defined as objective, meaning that the clinical criteria are met, or as subjective, meaning that the person may experience the requisite sense of lack of control, but without consuming unusually large amounts of food. Most people with eating disorders practice binge eating. So first of all, there is binge eating disorder, uh, which is also known as compulsive overeating. And this is the most prevalent eating disorder with rates estimated anywhere between 3 and 8%. Um, but it's currently subsumed under the diagnosis of eating disorder not otherwise specified. So even though there is talk about making binge eating disorder into a separate diagnosis, at this point, it's still in the DSM-4-TR part of this catch-all category of not otherwise specified. But binge eating, obviously, also occurs in all cases of bulimia because it's part of the definition of the disorder, and in most cases of anorexia nervosa, and that's a lesser known fact. Um, but if we look at clinical studies where um, subtypes of anorexia are being distinguished, then we can see that about half of 
the participants tend to be um, in the binge purge subtype of the disorder, not necessarily because um, there was any attempt to achieve a distribution of half and half, but because this just seems to be the way it is. And also, large percentages of people with restricting anorexia, and the estimates range from anywhere from 38% to 62%, are expected to develop binge eating or experience a diagnostic crossover either to bulimia or to binge purge anorexia over time, such that only a small percentage continues to engage in exclusive dietary restriction. So in biomedicine and clinical psychology, binge eating has been subject to substantial investigation. Using recall interviews and food diaries, clinical studies have analyzed binge eating as a response to hunger or negative affect, such as stress, anxiety, and low self-esteem, or as a need to dissociate. So while these studies offer diverging hypotheses about binge eating, they all suggest that the binge episode is functional. Binge eating essentially enables transitioning from a negative physiological or emotional state to another presumably more desirable state. One prominent hypothesis is the escape model, according to which binge eating focuses the person on eating-related stimuli and thereby allows for a temporary dissociation from feelings of distress. Other hypotheses position binge eating as part of a larger cycle of emotional mediation. So, for example, analyses of the binge purge cycle as practiced by people with bulimic behaviors um, show that when people are asked to record their feelings before, during, and after a binging episode, as well as before, during, and after a purging episode, the cycle is marked by fluctuating moods that are associated with specific points in the binge purge timeline. These analyses consistently demonstrate a rise in negative mood before the binge episode, but they diverge in the consequent emotional changes, with some arguing that the binge leads to reduction in negative affect, and others suggesting that it's not the binge, but rather the purge that functions as emotional mediator. So while there's no consensus, and while clinical studies of binge eating suggest experiential differences between and within subgroups of people who engage in binge eating, the view of binge eating as a functional practice is well established. But when we look beyond the clinical realm, we can see that binge eating has rarely been investigated. In feminist and social theory, anorexia as a restrictive practice and as extreme embodiment has been widely analyzed, whereas bulimia has been relegated to the position of theoretical footnotes or at times even invisibility. The few analyses that do mention binge eating do so as an afterthought, appended to a richer analysis of anorexic practices and bodies. In those cases, binge eating appears as a politically loaded metaphor. For example, for Susan Bordeaux, the binge is the postmodern feast that must be consumed before the obligatory purge. For Nancy Shepherd Hughes and Margaret Locke, quoting Robert Crawford, the binge is the manifestation of consumerist engorgement. And in both analyses, we can see that the binge serves as an indictment of American capitalism. So bulimia, as feminist Sarah Squire argues, doesn't really fit the theoretical paradigms into which anorexia can be easily conscripted. From Cartesian dualism to Foucauldian power regimes, anorexia really seems to be philosophically evocative. But even anorexia, as we previously mentioned, presents a much murkier picture 
because it belies a practice that's more complex than the restriction and starvation with which theorists have grown enamored. The binge-eating practices of anorexia are also left in a nearly pristine pre-analytic state. So when we look at the social sciences, anthropology included, we find, unfortunately, a similar situation. Few social scientists have written about the binge-eating experiences of their participants, with the notable exception being Becky Thompson, who's a sociologist, who analyzed binge eating as a sort of sedative with food used as a cheap drug, abused to cope with racist, heterosexist, and class-based oppression. Other interview-based analyses, such as feminist scholar Marie Burns' article on women with bulimia, focus on the discursive construction of bulimia as a counterpoint to anorexia. So while these analyses focus on important aspects of bulimia, they don't analyze binge eating as a phenomenological embodied experience. So going back to Sarah Squire, who is a self-described recovered bulimic, binge eating is an extreme embodied physical and emotional experience. So what she suggests is that it's this deep embodiment that deters theorists from engaging with and unpacking the meanings of bulimia. But anthropology doesn't really shy away from embodiment, as we all know. And in the past decade, um, there's been an emergence of breakthrough anthropological scholarship on anorexia in which embodied experience has taken the analytic center stage. Um, Rebecca Lester has written about anorexic experience as embodying abandoned feminine selfhood. Megan Warren, has published extensively on the sensory worlds of people with anorexia, analyzing their restrictive purging and cleansing practices as embodying abjection and purity, and Sigal Golden, writing on anorexic girls in a children's ward in Israel, described their hunger experiences as embodiments of national heroic narratives. So what this paper does is extend this analytic framework of embodiment to explore the practices and experiences associated with binge eating as narrated by people with anorexia and bulimia. Based on fieldwork I conducted in Israel with 36 people, aged 18 to 38, who had anorexia, bulimia, or eating disorder not otherwise specified, which in this case was the so-called sub-threshold manifestation of either bulimia or anorexia, this paper analyzes the illness narratives of, of participants who practice binge eating. Of the 36 participants, at least 19 engaged in binge eating, and 16 directly spoke of their binge eating experiences. This analysis positions embodied experience as central to the act of binging, and to use Thomas Chortis's phrase as the existential ground from which the individual meanings and wider cultural significance of this practice can be analyzed. So this is the time to pause and note that Although my findings supported the clinical hypotheses that position binge eating as a useful practice, as we see here, as a response to and as a means of altering negative affect, the objective of this paper is to explore binge eating as an embodied rather than a functional practice. So just to contrast, if this is the functionality of binge eating, this is what I mean by the phenomenology of binge eating. Instead of focusing on what is achieved through binge eating, this paper emphasizes the experiences associated with the practice upon their sensory and metaphoric manifestations and aims to offer an alternative account of binge eating as meaningfully embodied. 
Um, so this is a bit of a foreshadowing of the central themes that we're going to discuss. Um, the first will be hunger is imprisonment and binge is release. So in many cases, binge eating was precipitated by hunger. All participants who engaged in binging behaviors, whether diagnosed with bulimia or not, had a past of starvation behaviors, including restricting anorexia. Binging practices usually began inconspicuously with an initial venture towards often forbidden food after a period of restriction. Given the experience of hunger, however, these ventures escalated towards full binges involving amounts of food much greater than the participants felt they needed, wanted, or even were able to consume. Beginning to eat was a liberating experience that Hadass, who began to practice binge eating after months of hospitalization for anorexia. Seven years after recovering from anorexia, Hadass was undergoing a recovery process for bulimia. When I first met her, she continued to struggle with her binge practices. So this is a quote from Hadass. I think sometimes that until today, I'm eating in order to be satiated in my anorexic period. I'm still trying to satiate the hunger I created in myself then. First of all, it's something physical, I think. Like the body just tries to fill itself up with like as much as possible. And the moment you give it a little, it's just, you know, it's dying of hunger. It's dying of hunger physically and mentally. Like it's finished and it only wants food. It's in such trauma. And it has no idea when it's the last time, the next time it will receive food. Then it's just, then it wants as much food as you put into it. And, and also there was a very great release in it. It's not like during the entire anorexic period I didn't want to eat. I wanted to eat, but I was in the prison. Like, I couldn't eat even when I wanted to, even when I was, like, dying of hunger. I couldn't allow myself to eat. And then you just try to compensate yourself for a year of abuse. Like, you're just, that's what you're doing. Very much trying to compensate yourself and satiate yourself. And you're hungry in an abnormal way. Like, you eat a lot, and, and then it also becomes, like, this release is so much fun the food, suddenly you discover what a pleasure it is, how much, it's, how much you've missed it, you just can't stop. Hunger, as Adas told me on another occasion, still held its so-called charms. It was imbued for her with purity and superiority, the same embodied senses that permeated her anorexic experience. Yet as she described it in this excerpt, hunger was above all an overwhelming sensation of lack, repression, and abuse. In explaining the emergence of bulimic practice, Hadassah affected a dichotomy between the body and the eye. The hungering body, she implied, knows no better. It is exhausted, traumatized, imprinted with its past starvation, ignorant of all other possibilities. The body is driven, in an utterly physiological sense, towards eating for survival. The eye cannot influence this powerful, overwhelming physiology, only answer the body's commands. However, cognizant of the sensual, emotional deprivation of starving herself, the eye added a dimension to Hadassah's binge-eating practices and embodied not merely physical satiety, encompassing the need for food in both survival and life. Wanting the pleasure in addition to the sustenance of food, Hadassah experienced herself as imprisoned by her own anorexic practice. The prison metaphor resonated in the narratives of two other participants who engaged in binge-eating. However, unlike Hadass, both these women invoked Nazi Germany to convey this sense of imprisonment. So, again, a time to remind you, this took place in Israel and all 36 participants were Jewish. Such imagery is highly loaded in Israeli society, and I have rarely encountered it in common use. At the same time, however, as the Holocaust is central to Israeli and Jewish collective experience and memory, 
it is understandable that the Holocaust was a reference point in some discussions of hunger and starvation. Mira, who engaged in binging and purging for nearly two decades, used the metaphor of a well-oiled German machine to describe herself during bouts of starvation. Mariam, who had an eating disorder for about eight years, said she felt there was a monster that sat inside her head, affecting a Nazi-like starvation regime, quote, like they did to the Jews at the concentration camps. Both women alternated days of starving with days of binging, and both spoke of binging as a release of the self. Mira described binging as a sensation of freedom and excitement. It was actually who I was, the binges. It was the most authentic thing I had in life. For Marianne, binging was a way of allowing herself, victimized by starvation, to taste like all the things there are in the world before the monster decides I'm not eating anymore. In feminist and social theory analyses of anorexia, the prison metaphor also looms large. The anorexic body, needful, hungering, imbued with the discourse of Western philosophy and its male-dominated body-negating legacy, is conceptualized as imprisoning the self. As Susan Bordeaux argues, while the body experiences alien and outside, the soul or will is described as being trapped or confined. A typical fantasy, evocative of Plato, imagines total liberation from the bodily prison. I wish I could get out of my body entirely and fly. However, these accounts demonstrate that the dichotomy may not be so clear-cut. The embodied sense of imprisonment, in some cases, may undergo an inversion. Hadassah's prison metaphor, for example, seemed to affect the reversal of these concepts. The eye was associated with the sensory, and the repression of needs was the prison of the self. Not all participants engaged in binge eating described these sensations of imprisonment and release. However, for those who did, binge eating became the embodiment of the repressed, authentic self. Moving forward to the next theme, reconfiguring food as substance. Though hunger was at the core of binging and purging practices, it was, as the participants told me, a sense unlike a simple need for food. A consuming hollowness, this was a hunger of powerful striving toward fullness, a striving which turned into the opposite craving for emptiness. Clearly, there was the physicality of food, the desire for its flavors, textures, and scents, for nourishment. Starvation exacerbates binging was the axiom I encountered throughout field work, and those participants who binged had indeed all starved themselves, cycling between fasting or extreme dietary restriction and binging. The need for nourishment, however, was coupled with an even stronger need for fullness. The essence of the act of binging lay in its perceptual filling up and in the promise of the emptying that would follow. For most participants, it was around these axes of the two embodied sensations that the binging purging practice revolved, their desire and rejection constituting the cyclical pattern of these behaviors. To reach the embodiment of filling up, binge eating first entailed the transformation of food. Through the practice of binge eating and as each individual binge episode progressed, food was transformed from longed after sensory object into practical bland substance. As described in the previous section, for some participants, binge eating was associated with a sensation of release. Yet sensory pleasure in food, even when it existed, was not the central element of this release. For all participants but one, during binge eating, the sensory qualities of food had diminished into dullness. Tamar, who alternated restriction with binging and purging practices for 16 years, explained that while her binge eating tended to involve desired foods, it was not the quality of the food, but rather the amount, the sheer volume she ingested, that was key to each binge episode. It didn't matter anymore 
Most binges were around pastries and sweets, but it didn't matter. That means I wasn't, I didn't take pleasure in each bite, but I ate, I just ate. A package of biscuits, I ate all the biscuits. A package of pretzels, I ate all the pretzels. Many times it was a combination of nuts and sweets, like to balance out the salty and the sweet. It didn't really interest me what I had at home. What I had at home, I'd eat, and what I didn't, I'd go down to the news agents and buy. And I didn't really focus on what I chose. There would always be biscuits and this, there would always be ice cream, and there would almost always be nuts. And I just bought, and no, it didn't really matter what I liked more, what I liked less, as long as it was sweet. This loss of sensory qualities in food is not unique to binge eating. Gradually diminishing pleasure is a well-known aspect of the biology of satiety. However, as captured in Tamar's account, the sensory loss was an important part of the binge itself. The binge eating was linked with the consumption of desired or so-called forbidden foods. The quality and taste of these foods were peripheral to the embodiment of the binge. It was an act of embodied reductionism. One did not binge on flavor, texture, or scent, but on substance. Ultimately, a binge was no feast. It was an act of chewing, ingesting, and filling oneself with increasingly tasteless masses of food. When I asked Adi, who was recovering from bulimia, about the sensory experience of the binging, she told me that the central experience was the very action of eating. It dulls very quickly. At the beginning, there's a sensation, and later it dulls. What you're eating no longer interests you. You're eating. You're eating and you're present. Always when you're eating. I think I lost the sense of time, the sense of place. As Adi described it, binge eating was utterly absorbing, beyond time and space affecting a form of altered state similar to the dissociation depicted in clinical studies of binge episodes. The focal point of binge eating was fullness, and as will be discussed later in this paper, for most participants, this fullness was overwhelming, totalizing in its very presence. In the context of this fullness, food had to be reconfigured into a practical substance, divorced of meaning, commensality, history, and the senses. Food then became a substance of use, and this transformation came to characterize the binge itself. Some participants even said that during binges, they consumed combinations of food that they would otherwise consider inedible. Staff had a range of eating disorders for eight years. When we met, her diagnosis was ambiguous, varying from bulimia, according to one therapist, to anorexia, according to another. Staff began to practice binge eating a few months earlier, following a sustained restrictive period. She was disturbed by this binge eating and explained that the urge to binge, the uncontrollable craving she felt, the shivering and the pain was overpowering. As undesirable as her binge eating was, Stubb too explained that in its reductionism, binge eating enabled her continued starvation. Unlike most other participants, Stubb spoke of her binge eating with a sense of disgust. Of course I won't enjoy a binge. Like, you can maybe enjoy the first bite, and afterward it becomes revolting because everything is together and it's disgusting. And at some stage when you're doing it during a binge, then the whole body begins to shiver because you're putting a too large amount into it. It doesn't know how to cope with it, and it's not a good experience at all. Yet as she later explained, she was deeply invested in feeling this disgust. Food, she told me, had to be associated with unpleasantness in order for her anorexia to be sustained. The binge was a means of achieving that. Slowly, our body and your brain will link by association food and something disgusting, and you won't want to eat it. A similar account appeared in Aline's narrative. Aline, who began to practice binge eating after months of restricting anorexia, related her reconfiguration of food to the unbearable experience of starvation. 
I remember that I had, like, really, it's impossible to start forever. It's possible to try, it's impossible to succeed. And I had those breaking points when I would just devour everything I see around the house. And afterward, I would tell myself, it's okay, I'll vomit, and then I'll start anew. Tomorrow, I won't touch anything again. So during those raids of mine on the fridge and on all the shelves and on anything I could find at home, there was no connection to flavor. There was no connection there to anything. It was food. It could be from canned food through everything there is in the freezer. Really, totally irrational. And I could make huge amounts of food disappear. Elaine spoke of binge eating as highly undesirable. She told me she had actually sought treatment for an eating disorder only so as to stop the binge episodes and maintain her restrictive practices. They say a bulimic is an anorexic who failed, she said, and I had no intention of failing or anything like that. However, it was through binge eating and through the reductionism inherent in this practice that she maintained her restricting anorexic practices. For all participants who engage in binge eating, whether diagnosed as anorexic, bulimic, or the so-called sub-threshold versions of each of these defined disorders, binge eating was practiced in dialogue with dietary restrictions. In Aline's case, the occasional binge episode punctuated stretches of restriction, satiating her hunger and thereby enabling her starvation practices to continue. But on another level, Aline actually used the reconfiguration of food as substance as an embodied strategy. As part of her treatment, Aline was assigned nutritional exercises by her dietitian in which she was asked to taste new foods. As soon as I felt some preference, I just moved on to a binge. I erased it. I didn't want to connect to flavor. I didn't want food to have a physical value. I wanted it to have caloric value only. I didn't want to develop something I liked because as far as I'm concerned, it's developing a weakness. Binge eating then was a practice of decontextualizing and reconfiguring food, reducing it to mere substance, free of feeling or desire, whose so embodied presence was in filling up. So, filling up, an existential emptiness. The sensation that instigated an, an individual binge tra transcended simple hunger. With the entrenchment of binging, and in many cases purging, many participants said that they had lost their sensations of hunger and satiety altogether. Embodied experiences of food centered on emptiness, fullness, and the processes of chewing, ingestion, and in most cases, vomiting. And binge episodes often began with sensations for which the participants offered several definitions. An abnormal hunger, an overwhelming craving, or a frightening or disquieting emptiness. As mentioned earlier, most binge episodes were directed at the sensation of intense, overwhelming fullness. Participants described rummaging through the entirety of their kitchens, shopping for food in the midst of a binge, and binging onto exhaustion so as to achieve the fullness they sought. Galito engaged in binging and purging practices for about a decade, said that during the binge, you eat until you feel that you're being torn, that you can't move anymore. This need for painful fullness was paralleled in Tamar's narrative, quoted previously regarding the reconfiguring of food as substance. Tamar said she continuously shopped for food during binges so as to maximize fullness. I had to reach a condition where my stomach already really ached. It was already, I couldn't put food in, but I put more and more and more in. Already really, the stomach, I sat stretched with nausea already. It was clear there is no space for anything, but I'll eat another package of biscuits and then reach the edge. Though some critics claim otherwise, binging was not an emblem of decadent excess, as opposed to the supposed self-negation of restricting anorexia. 
For Tamaris, for Galit, and others, binging was an experience of self-mortification. The insistence on pain that Tamar described was particularly evocative, as pain was not only proof of utterfulness, but also its very embodiment. Tamar's entire sensory experience was altered in the process of binging, such that upon complete exertion and exhaustion, the sought-after fullness could be sensed throughout. While the embodiment of purging is beyond the scope of this paper, it's important to mention that in Tamar's case, as with most other participants, the fullness of binge eating was in dialogue with the emptiness affected by vomiting. Since, in most cases, binge eating had to happen in order for purging to occur. As in her binge practices, Tamar, for example, experienced vomiting as pain and punishment. So this was something that was unique to her and that was shared by some other participants. It didn't reflect everyone, but it's something to keep in mind. The disquieting emptiness that preceded binge eating was not the straightforward expression of an empty stomach. Feminist theory Sarah Squire, who was previously quoted um, about anorexia and bulimia in social theory, writing of her own experiences of bulimia, explains that following her mother's death, in the numbness of grief, bulimia was also an attempt to feel less empty through an intensely embodied and psychically invested practice. Squire's quote captures the sense of emptiness underlying the binge episode, an emptiness to which the participants in my study alluded, though most of them could not identify a particular crisis or event that instigated this empty feeling. Emptiness, as they invoked it, was an ambiguous sensation. Shiri, recovering after eight years of bulimia, spoke of binge eating with longing. It's something that nothing else ever filled me up like that, like the food did, and I don't think anything else ever will. Shiri's sense of emptiness was immediate and amorphous, yet she positioned her need to fill up as a nearly self-evident necessity. However undefined, emptiness was experienced as deeply unsettling. Angie, who continued to engage in binging and purging after six years of relentless eating disorder, explained that her binge eating used to occur only when she was in deep emotional pain. Over time, however, it became part of her routine, a method to cope with, as she called it, quietness. This quietness was so unbearable that she practiced cycles of binging and purging, sometimes repeatedly, despite suffering from hypokalemia, and other life-threatening complications. As she explained it, many times it happens to me that then very quickly I feel the emptiness again, and then I have to fill up again. Like sometimes it really, for hours over hours over hours, like eating, vomiting, eating, vomiting, eating, vomiting, until I'm exhausted already and I go to sleep. The need for a binge, she told me, was stronger than her. The emptiness would drive her out of bed at night, despite bouts of severe insomnia, leading to a temporary and disturbing sense that she had no other things in life but food. The meanings of emptiness and fullness were difficult to define, yet perhaps because they didn't lend themselves to easy interpretations, these sensations, to use Seth Lowe's phrase, constituted embodied metaphors. One of the most eloquent articulations of these metaphors appeared in Adi's narrative. Adi engaged in binging and purging for about eight years. She said that at the height of her disorder, she used to carry food in her bag to feel security and warmth. Bulimia was her anchor, she told me, and food was her friend. The emptiness always frightened me. The emptiness meant beginning to cope with things as they are. Adi dreaded the sensation of hunger, the rambling of an empty stomach. She was afraid of not having food at her disposal, of not being able to soothe the emptiness inside. 
The emptiness she feared, however, extended far beyond hunger. That same vacancy in the stomach, as far as I'm concerned, is allegorical to that same vacancy you feel in the soul. It's the best diagnosis I can give and the best definition I can give to some physical claim that I really didn't find anything that's so close to a sensation of satiety, to satiety from life, because I never reached the satiety from life itself, from the doing itself, from what I'm achieving in life. And from food, yes. Food, I ate, I satiated, I vomited. A day later said that her binging was an act of, quote, devouring the entire world. Her many professional aspirations had all dissipated, and as one disappointed followed another, not least because she was very ill, she felt increasingly dissatisfied. Food, as she explained, was simple and substantial, neither ephemeral dream nor abstract achievement. It was material to be sensed and embodied, to offer an immediate, if temporary, alleviation of her gnawing hunger. And the fullness of food was therefore indisputable, and its embodied effect absolute. So, as we conclude, binging, like restriction and purging, is an intensely and meaningfully embodied practice. As the narratives of, the, of this study's participants demonstrate, while undeniably functional, Binge eating should not be conceptualized as a mere means to an end. This paper has shown that while there are many experiential similarities between people who practice binge eating, there is no single way to embody this practice. Rather, just as anorexic restriction is not imbued only with purity all the time for all people who practice it, so is the practice of binge eating characterized by experiential complexity. However, whether as embodied release, transformative practice, or sought after fullness, binge eating speaks to existential metaphors, implicating the self and weaving together everyday eating disorder practice with embodied selfhood. <laughs>